Well, most people consider their wedding day to be one of the grandest, one of the most memorable and most important days of their life. That certainly was the case for me. I remember very well my last meal that day as a single man. My best man and I went and got pizza, of course. A really, really good restaurant in New Braunfels, by the way. So, uh, <laughs> I remember uh, after, uh, after that meal getting a call from Heather that the, uh, that the wedding cake company had dropped the ball. And so my best man spent the next several hours scouring the internet for some gluten-free uh, cake options. They ended up, we ended up getting it from the company anyway that had, we had originally done, but they, they thought they weren't going to be able to do it after all. At the last minute, too. What's up with that? I remember our uh, dearly beloved and departed brother, Ron, uh, charming all the uh, bridesmaids <laughs> who continued to ask after him and the other groomsmen every time we saw them ever since. And I remember him crying throughout the whole service. I remember the nice ladies at Christ our King helping us with our boutonnieres. And I remember that uh, Father Chip and Father Chuck shared the duties of officiating because I was in process of transferring over um, <laughs> Father, Father Chip looking at the liturgy that he didn't know and being very confused, poor guy. And I remember all my clergy friends assisting the, as the acolytes, the readers, and the deacons. And in fact, Deacon or Father Marcus and I still laugh about how then Deacon Marcus had to give their new deacon at Christ our King a crash course in what to do when we run out of communion wine. (laughs) And I am so very glad that many of you were able to come with Heather and I to the Lord's table for our first Eucharist as a married couple. Well, today's gospel is a parable about a wedding, much grander, fancier, and with much more drama than mine was. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, beginning at the first verse. Matthew 22, 1, and that can be found in your prayer book on page 218. And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Well, the last time we had a royal wedding, the media could talk about nothing else before and after for several weeks. How many folks here in the U.S. woke up at four in the morning to watch it on TV? I even have heard of uh, some of my some of my friends and acquaintances actually organized parties at four in the morning so they could watch it together with goodies. We did not do that at my house. Now, imagine being invited to the royal wedding and refusing to come. Not because you couldn't come, but because you would rather be in the office. This is, of course, and then, and then, not only refusing to come, but, but, but violently abusing the chauffeurs that the royal people had sent to pick you up. The most audacious, the, the worst behavior imaginable. Even, even in our democracy, where there is no royalty and the highest office is theoretically open to all of us, 
There is no one who, was, who, who would be invited to the White House that would refuse, even if you didn't vote for the current occupant. But that's the exact state of most people with respect to Almighty God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The first group of people in our parable, this initial group of invited guests, is meant to signify the priests, the, the Pharisees, the chief elders of the people, um, and we know that because that's who Jesus is talking to in chapter 21. The Messiah had come to his own people, the people of Israel, but was rejected by their leaders. And those who should have been most ready to recognize him received to receive him, received to recognize him, and indeed they led the majority of natural-born Israel, the majority of the Jewish people, with them in that refusing. And this is a pattern of rebellion that had already been established in the Old Testament. The servants that the wedding guests killed in the parable are meant to, to be a symbol of the Old Testament prophets who were sent by God to tell them to repent and to return to him. And also a symbol of Jesus' own apostles who were similarly killed by those to whom they had been sent with the gospel. According to the gospels, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD was God's judgment because of this rejection of the gospel. In the same way, that the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians 700 years prior was judgment for generations of idolatry and rejection of God. But this is also a cautionary tale for you and I today. This is not just about uh, Israel of old. Being raised in the church does not guarantee regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It does not guarantee true citizenship in God's kingdom. There are many weeds, to use another parable, that are sown among the grain. There are many baptized people in the church who have never been born again. There are many who have partaken of the outward and visible sign of the sacrament without receiving the inward and spiritual grace. And just as the prophet Ezekiel saw the presence of God leave the apostate temple at the time of the Babylonians, even so God abandoned individuals and churches to their own apostasy and rebellion. They said, my will be done, and God said, okay. We can all picture churches within our own beloved Anglican communion that have abandoned the gospel perverted God's law, and are visibly devoid of God's spirit. You see their bishops, you see their, their services, and you're like, oh my goodness, how can you even call yourselves Christian? And this, this absence of God's spirit, this mere shadow of what they used to be, is in itself evidence of God's judgment. After all, what worse judgment can there be than for God to leave us to our own destructive and foolish whims after we tasted his goodness. But in our parable, God's judgment is also followed by mercy. So let's look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So now this shows the general call of the Lord uh, to, 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 to come to him. God's call is bigger than his original chosen people from the Old Testament. It's bigger than those that are raised in the church even. It's bigger than those who are raised in Christian homes or surrounded by a generally Christian society. Many of you who are here today may be first-generation Christians. You are the first one in your family to accept the gospel and to follow Jesus Christ. But even if you were raised in the church, like I was, like many of you were, chances are one of your ancestors was not, and you received the benefit of their conversion. This is why the doctrine of election that we read about in Ephesians 1 and in our articles of religion uh, is, is not contrary to God's grace. The idea that God chooses us before we choose him is not against the idea of God's loving grace. The same invitation is extended to everybody. St. Paul tells us in Romans 1, that even those who have not heard the gospel overtly have witnesses to God's greatness in all of creation. The philosopher Blaise Pascal described what has come to be called the God-shaped hole in everyone's hearts. We all instinctively know there's something bigger than ourselves, something that's ultimately good, ultimately righteous, ultimately just. And so every Christian has both the duty and the privilege of sharing the gospel with anyone. Often the person who appears to have the hardest of hearts is the one on whom the Holy Spirit has been working. Even in scripture, we see that Saul of Tarsus, later known as St. Paul, was touched by Christ on the very road he was traveling to bring persecution to the church. Anyone can come to the Lord. That invitation is open to all. Well, let's look at verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Well, this can uh, certainly be a terrifying passage. On the face of it, it looks like the man was handcuffed and kicked out of the wedding feast because he was underdressed. And if he was one of those from the main roads who came in, one of those who just kind of got gathered in by the servants, what if he was wearing his best, but his best just wasn't good enough? Well, most commentaries point out that it was typical in the ancient world for guests to be provided with the wedding garment, especially if the host was royalty or very wealthy. In other words, this man apparently rejected his host's provided formal wear and instead insisted on wearing his jeans and a t-shirt. Well, the church fathers tended to see the wedding garment as representing Christian love, which of course in the King James is often called charity, based on that famous passage from 1 Corinthians 13, where St. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Well, the reformers tended to see the wedding garment as representing Christ's righteousness given to us by God when we're justified by faith. That is, the man without the wedding garment was trusting in his own righteousness rather than uh, to make him his own righteousness to make him worthy of God's presence rather than Christ's righteousness. And when we remember that all of our good works, especially that greatest work of Christian love, are the fruit of our justification we see that the, the fathers and the reformers are really speaking of two sides of the same coin. If you have not been justified by Christ's righteousness, you can have no genuine good works. You will not love God or your neighbor. That's why St. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. That's 2 Corinthians 13.5. Or this is why St. Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to, conform your call, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never, fa- never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Whenever you find yourself doubting your faith, doubting whether indeed whether God indeed has invited you to that marriage supper of the Lamb, the proper response is repentance. First, you repent of doubting God's promise that's expressed to you in your baptism. Second, repent of whatever those sins are that are causing you to be distant enough from God to the point that you question your faith. Remember John 3.16 that uh, well-known memory verse that we read as one of our comfortable words every Sunday says, in the words of the way our prayer book puts it, So God loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So are you part of the world? Well, if so, then God loved you enough to send his Son. The fact that you're thinking about this is evidence that you do indeed belong to him. And so then, after you've repented, come to the feast. Ultimately, we look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb described in the prophets and in Revelation when the church is presented to Christ as his spotless bride and everything is set to right in a renewed heaven and earth. But in the meantime, we have the Paschal Feast at the Lord's table every Sunday. We have communion with our Lord and with each other. We have the sacrament that feeds us with the Lord himself. As Bishop, Reformer, and Martyr Hugh Latimer, who uh, we commemorate his death later on this week, as uh, Hugh Latimer said, Now what manner of meat was prepared at this great feast? Mary, it was the bridegroom himself. For the father, the feast maker, prepared none other manner of meat for the guests, but the body and blood of his own natural son. And so, beloved, Taste and see that the Lord is good, clothed in his righteousness and love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Ye shall not appear before the Lord.